This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 16th of September 2023. It's 1700 in Beijing, 11am in Kiev, 9am here in London and 4am in Washington DC. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Saturday starts now. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we begin in Iran, a year after the death in custody of Masa Amini. Are protesters marking the occasion? We'll have a leaf through the global papers with Teres Diastany and then... Smuggled out past Russian soldiers. The film is lauded for creating a searing document of the war crimes unleashed on the city by Russian forces. Monocle's Juliet Lassica visits the Ukraine Film Festival. All that ahead. First, though, here's the news. The commander of an elite Russian regiment, Vasily Popov, has been killed, according to the Institute of the Study of War. In related news, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un inspected Russian nuclear-capable strategic bombers, hypersonic missiles and warships today, accompanied by President Vladimir Putin's defence minister. In China, the defence minister, Li Shang-Fu, who's been missing from public view for more than two weeks, has been placed under investigation relating to procurement of military equipment. The probe into Li follows China's unexplained replacement of Foreign Minister Qin Gang in July after a prolonged absence from public view. On Friday, the European Commission decided not to extend its ban on grain imports into Ukraine's five EU neighbours. But Poland, Slovakia and Hungary have now announced their own restrictions. The three countries argue their actions are in the interests of their own economies. And large parts of Australia are in the grips of an uncommon spring heat today, the nation's weather forecaster said, adding that record temperatures could be set on Sunday. The heat burst came after the forecaster said that indicators of an El Nino weather event had strengthened and it would likely develop between September and November, bringing hotter, drier conditions to Australia. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday and welcome particularly to Terry Stiastini. Good morning. Good morning. You've had a busy morning. A busy morning, uh, just getting up, getting ready to go off and have uh, a nice day elsewhere, but doing all the usual things, uh, getting the dog fed, getting the dog walked and, and other th- you know domestic thing, things needed to be done. Can I ask why it was you and not your husband? Uh, he is away overnight uh, and the kids are uh, were st- still asleep, but getting ready to go out and, and do their own stuff. So I don't mind walking the dog, but I've, I've got them pretty well trained doing some of the rest of, <laughs> of the things going on in the household. But I mean, just talking about that domestic imbalance, it is still something that, that we have to grapple with on, on a day-to-day basis. Nothing like the way our mothers used to have to do it, of course. And looking to Iran, nothing like the way that women are absolutely no. persecuted there. I want to have a look at this piece in Le Figaro, because today, of course, is the one-year anniversary of the death in custody of Masa Amini. Uh, Le Figaro, a wonderful piece by Delphine Minoui, uh, 
uh, picks this up. Talking, talking about a 17-year-old girl in Iran and how she took part in the protests. Yes, this is a really interesting story. And they've obviously talked to this young girl, a 17-year-old girl who they're calling uh, Malika, about her, her life in Tehran and just really how it has been changed um, after the death of Masa Amini. She says that something in her inside herself was torn, but she felt kind of awakened by these protests. And just the girl telling what it was like to grow up as a young girl in Iran, that, you know, when she was nine years old, her whole class was told right from today on, you have to wear your headscarf, um, that she took part in the protest. She decided to take off her headscarf. You know, she felt that she was being unfairly treated her whole life because her parents had wanted a boy. Um, but then she's taken off her headscarf and took part in the protests um, and still is not wearing it. She's saying 90% of her friends will not will not do it. But the, the, as part of that, she saw, you know, friends die in front of her, beaten by, by the security forces. So mm. it's just a really um, dramatic insight into the life of a, of a young woman in Tehran. Uh, and of course, there was an enormous crackdown on these protests. Let's turn to Sanam Vakil, who's been di- uh, listening to that. She, she's di- the Deputy Director of the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House. Uh, Sanam, this today is, is a very, very sad day where we, we mark this brutal murder, really, in custody. Um, I wonder if there are signs of unrest uh, in Iran from, 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 from the people there. Uh, are they taking to the streets again? Good morning. Uh, today is indeed a sad day, but so will the many days ahead, because Masa Jina Amini was the first of many people to die uh, through the protest. Over 500 people um, are reported to have been killed. So uh, there will be a series of mournings and commemorations in the months ahead. Um, There aren't any current visible signs of protest. The Iranian government is uh, being very repressive. It's slowed down the Internet to prevent communication. Um, And it's made it very clear through arrests over the past few days, including um, of lawyers uh, close to the Amini family, family members like Amini's uncle, um, that it is not going to tolerate dissent. But last night in Tehran, I did hear that there were shouts of um, women, life, freedom, um, and those chanting and shouts from the windows haven't been heard for a number of months. And they were regular sort of chorus of support, um, civil disobedience, if you will, that began after the protests were really cracked down Mm. upon. Now, it's been announced that there will be new laws coming in. What happens going forward to to women in Iran? Well, well, there is a new um, hijab and chastity law being um, discussed in closed doors um, at the parliament. And I think that there is a debate um, within the conservative political establishment about Um, how they can reinforce the hijab, which is a really important symbol of the Iranian revolution and um, Iran's Islamic ideology that underpins the government, um, while at the same time not um, uh, sort of triggering another round of protests. This this law will be quite punitive. It will punish businesses for uh, seeing um, and allowing women in, in... public spaces. It could also lead to the arrest of women. It could also lead to fines. So there are various sort of legal um, ramifications should women continue to flout the law. I know this is a question we return to often, Sanam, but why is the regime so afraid of women having freedom? 
Um, well, in 1979, when the revolution um, was concluded and hardliners really sort of were the victors of that revolution, they created a, a political system that's really unique. Um, and the basis of that political system and, and the legitimacy of that political system relies on a very conservative interpretation of Islam. Um, and the great irony is that um, you know, through these four decades, people in Iran, because of institutionalized religion, have become less religious. But the state is really stubborn to change. It sees compromise as an, as sort of unleashing further uh, push from below. And so it's trying to reinforce its identity and legitimacy through repression. And do you think that that repression's worked in terms of our women and their supporters too cowed to come out on the streets now? They've seen the terrible consequences. Uh, do you think we, we will see any more protests, either within Iran or indeed by people protesting from, from neighbouring countries? Um, well, I think it would be really hard to call upon women or um, actually, you know, broad swaths of society. These were women-led protests, but these protests also included all facets and constituencies in Iran. So I think um, that, you know, the principal sort of unifier was dignity and freedom for all Iranians. And, and this was really a political uh, political movement and protest that developed over the course of last year. Um, I think it would be really hard to call upon people to protest because it would really be a choice to risk your life mm. um, amidst, you know, a regime that continuously uses coercive means in order uh, to remain in power. And so I think um, we have to be quite cautious and humble in, in what we expect from, from people living in these conditions. There will be protests um, and demonstrations, I think, in many Western cities um, today um, and in the coming days. So um, there will be a dichotomy between what we can do outside versus what we can expect inside. Sanam, thank you very much indeed. That's Sanam Vakil. And I'm still in the studio with Terry Stiastny. Interesting, of course, that there is international support for this movement. Uh, people in, in other Muslim countries, but indeed in countries all over the world, coming together to say this is not right. Looking at international support more generally, though, of course, two huge disasters uh, recently. Uh, we're looking at the earthquake in Morocco and the terrible floods in Libya. Uh, and they're very different responses to those are, are very interesting, plus the international support that has or has not, in some instances, been allowed in. The Guardian has a big piece on this Yes, today. that's right. There's an interesting um, analysis uh, piece here by, by Rupert Neat in The Guardian with uh, Peter Beaumont, who's a sort of very experienced foreign correspondent, talking about exactly you know the difficulty and the difference between the situations in Morocco and in Libya, and particularly in the case of Libya, how difficult it is is to get not only obviously journalists to be able to go and, and cover the catastrophe there, but also you know similarly for aid agencies to be able to get in. And it's just you know he's described Peter Beaumont here, um, he who's been covering uh, the situation in Morocco and says you know well Morocco is relatively easy to go and cover. It's a functioning modern state. You know he was able to drive directly to the epicenter of the earthquake and talk to people about what was going on. But he's saying here that Libya 
Libya, you know, is a failed or semi-failed state. Uh, and, you know, if he'd been sent to Libya, but it's just this incredibly difficult and dangerous place to work, you know, you would need a visa to get there. You wouldn't know if you would get one. That would be for only for the government controlled areas. But the, the flooding has happened in you know, areas which is controlled by you know, a different set of powers. You know, you've got Russian mercenaries there. You know, and he said that even 12 years ago, it was one of the most dangerous jobs that he had ever done. Um, and talking about, you know, the safety concerns, you know, obviously all of this goes for aid agencies as well. I um, mean, saying this is an interesting quote here from, from Peter Beaumont. Uh, as nasty autocratic states go, Libya under Gaddafi functioned and had a huge amount of money from oil. It was a place that worked in a horrible way with no rights or freedoms, but it had dif- decent infrastructure, um, and not, but not so much now. Mm-hmm. Um, and But interestingly, of course, Morocco, although it's a very different kind of country, they've been quite restrictive on what they've wanted in terms of international aid. So, you know, they've said some countries can send rescue teams, like sort of UK, Qatar, Spain, um, but they've turned down offers of help from, from other countries, like uh, particularly France, uh, the US, Turkey, and you know, which is, seems a, a strange thing to do in the circumstances. Absolutely, very, very odd. I wonder if you've read um, Hideous Kinky by Esther Freud. I have a long, yes, a while ago. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, quite, yes. it's quite an old book now, but that's about her growing up in Morocco with her older sister and, and, and her mother. She, of course, was the daughter of, of Lucien Freud, the British painter. But in the book, she describes being about six years old and waking up in the garden. And it's because there'd been an earthquake and her mother had grabbed her and her sister and dragged them outside. Um, and, of course, in that instance, it wasn't nearly so bad. But she's she's doing a lot on social media saying, please help Morocco and this is, this is what's going on. Interestingly, um, that was made into a film. I think it starred uh, Tony oh, Collette. Mm. Um, really lovely film, and really gave you a sense of 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 that really kind of hippie-ish childhood growing up there. Um, but it, the film was way back in 1998. And of course, we're all being forced to watch old stuff <laughs> now because of the writer's strike. Yes, I mean, we haven't, I think, seen seen the full effect yet. I think it's going to be a while down the pipeline when the films that would have been being written or made now aren't going to aren't going to come. And our, you know, we'll be clicking through our TV things, looking for something uh, on our streaming services to watch that may just not, not be there. Um, but it's interesting, uh, picking up on some of the, you know, the uh, writers are, are finding different writers and actors are finding different things to do um, in the absence of uh, of work to do because of the, the writers and actors strikes. And there's a an article here on um, NPR's website in the States where they are talking about um, an auction that has been set up uh, through eBay, which is p- pledging to support some of the crew members who obviously, you know, it's not only the writers and actors who are not working, but the, the you know the the technical crew and other people are have out of out of work as well because uh, and this in in the states particularly means they don't get health insurance which you can imagine is is pretty worrying for them so what you can do um is you can ask for you can offer money for various stars uh to come and do things for you um so you could ask for Lena Dunham could come, would come and paint a mural in your home the bid for that is currently $3000 you could go uh, to dinner with with Bob Odenkirk from from Better Call Saul uh the cast of the Bear is doing a signed blue apron, and you can buy other sort of you know merchandise like uh, one of Tom Waits's Waits's fedoras, and also some, somebody apparently will come and, and help you um, fill in fill in the New York Times crossword uh, <laughs> for, for a certain sum. You'd hope they're good at that, you know. So it's like about two thousand dollars, which presumably that money then goes into a pot to go to other yes, people. It's not to those stars. No, themselves. it's certainly not going to the stars yeah. themselves. No, this is to support these um, you know tech crew members, you know, who would would otherwise be working on films. 
problems, but who, who haven't got their health insurance um, and obviously concerned about that. So it's going into a kind of, yeah, I think a sort of a union fund, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So no new movies coming out of America. It's obviously affecting the British film industry too. Uh, but I'd like to look towards the Ukrainian film industry now because uh, their film festival began on Thursday. It presents feature films, short, short films and documentaries that give an insight into the life of contemporary Ukraine and the power of solidarity in the face of war. So one of the standout documentaries, 20 Days in Mariupol, tells the story of a Ukrainian journalist trapped in the city during the beginning of Russia's invasion. The fourth annual Ukrainian film festival opened in London's Kazan Soho Cinema on Thursday night. Running until the evening of Sunday 17th of September, it brings together a selection of feature, documentary and short films, all shot after the beginning of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Presented by the Ukrainian Institute London, the festival is titled Side by Side and is an invitation, organisers say, for international audiences to stand in solidarity with Ukrainians. Although the war pervades the films on the big screen, the festival is also a register of the unlikely renaissance of Ukrainian cinema, including vibrant, lyrical reflections of contemporary Ukrainian life. So, on Thursday night, I went down to Soho for the beginning of the festival. First on the programme was Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Mstislav Chernov's 20 Days in Mariupol. Someone once told me, wars don't start with explosions. They start with silence. This was the film's first London showing, and it has been widely anticipated across the world, winning accolades including the Audience Award at Sundance and Counting. It charts the nearly three-week period an Associated Press team spent in the Ukrainian port city of Mariupol, when Russian forces infamously laid siege to it in the opening months of the full-scale invasion. If the world saw everything that happened in Mariupol, it would give at least some meaning to this horror. My brain will desperately want to forget all this, but the camera will not let it happen. Smuggled out past Russian soldiers, the film is lauded for creating a searing document of the war crimes unleashed on the city by Russian forces, even whilst they attempted to hunt down and destroy the film material and its creators. By miracle, Russian efforts to prevent evidence of their actions being broadcast to the world were unsuccessful. But as Dale McCrudden, producer of 20 Days and head of global news production at the Associated Press, told me after the screening, the film isn't only about the journalists making it. Our job is to bear witness, and we knew when this was unfolding that this was significant. When in the film there's a bombing of a maternity hospital, and within hours we had that footage in, in our hands and were putting it out to the world, and newsrooms all over the world were using it. And we knew how valuable that was, how important it was. So in that sense, capturing events contemporaneously is part of what we do, whether it's in Ukraine or in the flooding in Libya or in the earthquake in Morocco. But then once we started putting the film together, and it was about August last year when I saw the very first rough cut, I knew we had something incredibly special, incredibly unique. And at that point, I knew that we had something that really was a testament to the people of Ukraine. McCrudden was also clear on the legacy he knew the film would have. I think. 20 Days in Mariupol reminds people of what is going on somewhere in Ukraine today. As I speak to you last Wednesday, a week ago, 
there was a small market town that had a missile strike in it, killing 16 people. As it happens, the director of the film, Mr. Saab, was there. Genia, the photographer featured in the film, was there. And again, their images made front page news. And I think, if anything, 20 Days in Mariupol should remind people to not turn away, to not let the story of Ukraine disappear because it's about real people. The emphasis on humanity and real experiences is felt throughout the festival. After the screening, I caught up with the festival's curator, Olga Sidorushkina, who gave me a tour around a photo exhibition set up in the foyer of Kazan Soho by Odessa Photo Days. I asked her what she hoped the festival would achieve. Definitely the hope that this films will explain more about our history and what we are going through and will help people to relate and see human stories behind the news, behind the numbers, see people to understand them better, to understand their pain better and then to feel more connected. Looking forward to the rest of the festival, Olga told me she was looking forward to We Will Not Fade Away, directed by Lisa Kovalenko, which tells the story of five teenagers from Ukraine's Donbass going on an expedition to the Himalayas. For Olesya Kromychuk, director of the Ukrainian Institute London, it is Butterfly Vision, directed by Maxim Nakonechny. It tells a story that so rarely makes it to the headlines. First of all, it's a film that's set in 2017, at the time when this war was entirely forgotten in the West, outside of Ukraine. And it also tells the story of a woman, a service woman, a drone operator who is well, who is rescued out of captivity, out of Russian captivity. And we so rarely talk about women in the war in this particular manner. They remain in the shadows. We don't know their stories. And this film tells that story really powerfully. Romaychuk explains the heightened interest in this film festival through international solidarity, which she identifies as one of Ukraine's strongest weapons. But it's also the quality of the films, which she says can't be beaten. One thing that I'm particularly proud of is that every single piece of cinema that we're showing is just really good cinema. Not only does it tell extremely important story, it's also just very, very good. So I'd encourage all of your listeners to come and watch the films. For Monaco Radio, I'm Julia Lassica. Well, thanks, Julia. And if you'd like to support the festival, you can catch the final screening of 20 Days in Mariupol uh, at the Curzon in Soho tomorrow. Uh, and, and talking about uh, film, uh, Terry, I mean, obviously, we were talking about the writer's strike and how nothing new is being made. But do you think that film has spoiled us for theatre? Because it's possible now to get so close to events that when you go to a theatre, it seems like our appreciation of it is perhaps tempered a little by the fact that we've had a completely different experience. If we want to be told a story, we can be there in the middle of the story on celluloid. Um, I think some theatre. I mean, the thing I've noticed about theatre, and maybe it's just the things that I choose to go and see, and it's just been a sort of a run recently, but I found that I haven't seen a play that's about a fictional character in a long time. Um, so the, of the last few things I've seen, I saw um, Jack Thorne's play at the National Theatre, The Motive in the Queue, which is all about uh, Gielgud meeting Richard Burson in, in New York in, in the 60s Fantastic and performing play, Hamlet, which yeah. is really clever, uh, directed by Sam Mendes, really, really beautifully done. Um, and also, I'm struggling to remember the, the play, The Almeida, which is also about... Uh, 
Boris, um, the Russian dissidents and right. the rise of Putin. And that was amazing. You did feel like you were really there, like the mm. actor who was playing Putin sort of suddenly looked around and made eye contact in this quite small theatre with, you know, the front rows and mm. the balcony. Mm. And you felt like, you know, it's almost like Vladimir Putin was, was standing there. So yeah. a lot of plays about a real people. I mean, I didn't see the latest James Graham play, Dear England, which was all about Gareth Southgate and the England football team. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it seems to be an interesting trend at the moment that, that theatre feels it has to kind of mirror reality or recent events and try and explain them to us. And there's a lot of verbatim theatre about Gillian Slovo, the brilliant South African writer, is really, really good at that, just taking absolutely what's been said, or Nicholas Kent at what was what used to be the Tricycle, now the Kiln Theatre. Um, there's that wonderful one about Gr- uh, Grenfell Tower uh, tragedy uh, and um, ver- various others. But it's it's so interesting that, that we're watching that. Somebody was telling me that they went to see another verbatim play the other day with, with a completely different outcome, uh, which was uh, Wagatha Christie, <laughs> which is about the wag row. That's Colleen Rooney and Rebecca Vardy. And this play apparently was absolutely hilarious, but it was abs- every single word was from the court report. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I think maybe that there's just been so much drama, political and otherwise, and you know that actually people want to see see that reflected back in in a different way, and actually ha- engage with these events that that really happen, but in a in a different kind of way. Yeah, I went to see another court one, which was witness for the prosecution at County Hall, and that's obviously by Agatha Christie. And um, what really struck me was here was this play. It was perfectly good, lovely production. But I could have been watching it in 1950. And you think, actually, theatre has come on so much. It's so different. So you've got that, which I would class as perhaps traditional theatre. That's one kind of theatre. But then you go way the other side to, I mean, this is comparing apples and pears because it's a musical, but something like Guys and Dolls, mm. which is so sophisticated. You've got mm. the, the stage coming up well, the and the staging down of that and, is just astonishing. Uh, yes, I mean, you, really can, you can be right standing in the bottom with, with the cast and with everything happening and yeah. getting involved in the dancing and everything. So, and mm. I mean, one thing I suppose that those two shows do have in common is that they get the audience involved. So in Witness for the Prosecution, you've got audience members who are actually members of the jury. They don't really have to do anything, but, you know, they are there. Uh, and in Guys and Dolls, you are part of the action as you'll mo- if you choose to have a standing ticket as you as you're moved around the stage which is which is quite extraordinary i wonder if you've seen any of um the work of punch drunk uh, no, they're, they're no. a fantastic company and they've developed a, a form of immersive theatre. Uh, and what that really means is that no audience member experiences it the same as any other member. The audience can, is free to watch which bits they want to see, uh, whereabouts they want to go, because it's all immersive. It all takes place sort of in, in multi kind of spaces. Uh, absolutely fascinating way to do it, but so, so different from your, you know, standard proscenium yeah, march. march. <laughs> Um, thing it quite quite extraordinary um the Garrick theater of course uh, another big big venue it's had um, I can't remember what it is uh, but it's just finished with a comedian uh, in it um and I think it's got the I think it's got the gruffalo coming <laughs> for, for Christmas but the Garrick of course is also a club uh, and a men's only club which takes us actually to where we started uh, on this program uh, and there is talk that it's finally going to have to let in women yes this is an interesting 
interesting story in the Times. And as you say, the Garrick sort of famous sort of theatre land uh, kind of a club, um, what described here in the Times as one of the last bastions of all male membership. Uh, and the actor Hugh Bonneville was among one of the members who put two women up for membership uh, 12 years ago. In fact, one of them was Joanna Lumley, uh, that who he wanted to um, put up for membership. But there was a legal opinion um, where a KC wrote a 10-page document which concluded that women couldn't be proposed because basically he looked at the rules and said that which said no candidate shall be eligible unless he be proposed by one member and seconded by another and this eminent lawyer took this to mean that he just had to be a man which I'm not sure I, I'm not a lawyer but I think that you know that that's not necessarily legally the case anymore uh, Michael Beloff this lawyer has prepared a new legal opinion kind of updating his view and this could possibly now mean that the Garrick might have to um, admit women. The last time uh, they had a vote on this it was I think uh, 50, just over 50%, um, eight years since 50.5% of members had voted to accept women, short of the two-thirds majority required to change the rules. Um, so this is uh, not going to happen anytime soon, I don't think, this possible change. Um, and particularly even if they did suddenly change the rules to admit women there is apparently a waiting list of about 10 years how extraordinary, though, that these women would want to join a place that really, really has made it clear it doesn't want them. It seems strange, but maybe if that's where where your friends go and you would like to, to be, you know, it's a nice big building in Covent Garden and you'd like to go and sit in a in a nice comfy sofa with, with friends. I'm not, I'm not sure of what the rules are on allowing sick. women as guests. Well, uh, some of these places, they don't allow you to be a member, but you can go along, you know, as a guest. I mean, sometimes I think you used to have to go by the back stairs in some of these old do. gentlemen's clubs. You know? I refuse to go to anywhere where they make me go in a separate entrance <laughs> and they say I have to wear a skirt. It's yeah. outrageous. I I know, think. Yeah. And also there are so many other options. You know, if you want to be in a club in Covent Garden well you've 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 got um you've got Mortimer House's uh, Warwick one Warwick there you've got uh, the conduit there in Soho you've got Soho House you've got Crovadas uh, you've got uh, the Grouch. I mean there are mm. many many I mean I I can defend you know I can see that the law you know does allow it allows women to have women only clubs if you want to have women only clubs so you know by the same token you should uh, maybe allow men to have men only clubs if that's really what they want to do but I think this one is seen as so being heart of you know the Kind of establishmenty club that people obviously you know still want want to go get in there and to, to be allowed to join. Hmm. Which one of us is going to quote Groucho Marx? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, apparently the subscription fees are around a thousand to fifteen hundred pounds, which I guess is probably what you pay in in many of these other clubs as well. But yes, do we want to join any club that uh, we wouldn't want to join any club that would have us as a member? Absolutely, I'm with Groucho yeah. on that. <laughs> Terry, thank you very much. That's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks also to our producer and studio manager, Mariella Bevan. And uh, Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening.